Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Drew Freeman and Jen Bailey. Thanks, Ray. This is the Ray Wenderlich podcast. Welcome to episode nine for season nine. This episode was recorded on Wednesday, the 10th of July, 2019, for broadcast on the 7th of August, 2019. This episode, along with everything else this season, is sponsored by Triple Byte. That's Byte, B-Y-T-E. I am Drew Freeman, here with my indescribable season nine co-host, Jen Bailey. Thanks, Drew. On this episode, we have the honor of talking with Roman Guy. I've personally got to see his talks at both Google I.O. and the 360 Andev conference here in Denver, Colorado. He's the manager lead of the Android Toolkit team at Google, which is the team that's responsible for the Android UI Toolkit Jetpack, a collection of tools designed to help developers build mobile applications faster. Uh, prior to this, he was the lead for the Android graphics team and has worked on Android since before its first public release. Remain's work can still be found in your phones and SDKs today. He also knows a lot about color, displays, and too many things to mention in a 40-minute podcast. It's a good thing that this has also got a YouTube associated with it, which will have all the extra information that we don't fit into the 40-minute podcast. In this episode, Roman will discuss what is new in Android Q, which just released today as of this broadcast, and he's going to talk about some of his AR work. Later on in the show in the second half, Jen's going to talk about her first experiences with Jetpack Composer, and hopefully maybe she'll get a couple of tips and secrets from Roman about the new Android UI framework. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Obviously, I have to ask you the most important question about all of your experience. I'm told you do photography. Uh, yes, uh, it's, a, it's a hobby of mine. Uh, that takes a little too much of my time sometimes. Are those some of your photographs behind? Uh, behind, you see, yes, one of them. <laughs> so you'll have to watch the YouTube the, the YouTube version of this to see the pictures behind him. Uh, yes, but if you have a Chromecast or if you have been using Android like uh, for a long time, you've probably seen some of my photos as wallpapers or backgrounds. Or if you use Gmail themes, uh, some of those photos are, are photos I took. That is amazing. I have seen your photos in all of those places. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get on to Android Q. It released today. This was uh, beta number five. Is that correct? Uh, yes. So I wouldn't say it has released. We just made available the fifth uh, beta version uh, to, uh, to, to users uh, who opt in into the program. What are the most exciting things, um, in your opinion, about Android Q and Beta 5 release in particular? There are, there are a number of features. Uh, one of the, my favorite ones, uh, and I think a lot of our users and developers will agree, is the, uh, the dark mode uh, that's coming to the UI. So you can turn, you know, by default, a lot of applications on Android and the system UI have this light theme. Uh, that some people can find too bright in dark environments. Uh, so now you can turn everything dark. Uh, so applications, of course, uh, can support the dark mode. And we have a, a system, um, it's an opt-in applications can ask for the, an auto dark mode where we try to intelligently uh, turn the application dark. What are some tips for developers who need to now change their apps from being a light theme to a dark theme? So we have a lot of uh, materials out there, in particular at Google I.O. There were a couple talks on this topic. Uh, I believe it was Chris Baines and Nick Butcher. Uh, 
so they take you through all the styles and themes. Uh, what are the best practices to create, you know, a, a successful dark dark theme for your application? Yeah, and are there any specific um, design considerations with um, the dark modes? Like, I I remember someone mentioned that photos can look bad under one of the default themes if you don't exclude them, if you just have it automatically flip from light to dark? <laughs> so the, the, the auto uh, dark feature that we have tries to be smart uh, and is rather conservative. Um, so when something is considered very colorful, it's not going to try to turn it into something dark. Uh, so precisely to avoid, uh, to avoid these kind of, of, of issues. Um, no, I mean, the main concern is the usual, you know, making sure that things stay legible, that you have the right contrast. Uh, especially for accessibility, uh, which is always very important to us. Great. So, uh, yeah, another uh, another interesting feature we have is a. Uh, it's kind of a, a small feature, as in, you know, it's it's not very obvious in in the UI, but we have this uh, live caption feature. Um, so when you're watching a video, we use uh, you know machine learning effectively to automatically create captions uh, on screen, uh, so it can work with any content. Uh, which is very useful when, you know, either you have trouble hearing uh, or you don't want to turn on the sound, uh, which might be in situations where that's what you want. <laughs> I remember seeing that in one of the talks and it looked really, um, really cool. Now, is that captioning being done on device or is that being done by a network? Uh, I believe it's done on device. Uh, and that is, you know, another one of the themes uh, of Android Q is around uh, privacy. Um, so the ability to do things like uh, apply machine learning on device is very important because that way the data doesn't leave your device uh, and everything stays stays where it should be. I've seen a lot of talk about Camera X, and I mm -hmm. don't know a whole lot about cameras, but um, I would love to hear. Yeah, so the, 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 the thinking behind Camera X is uh, it kind of relates to uh, uh, this bigger um, project we have called Jetpack, uh, which is effectively a suite of libraries that we offer to make developing applications easier um, and in different ways. Like it started as a very simple, uh, what we call we used to call the support library, which was a way to target multiple versions of Android in a, in a simpler way uh, for developers. And it has grown uh, to go quite beyond that. So now it's about uh, the architecture of your application, how to do proper navigation, uh, it's uh, our way for us to have opinions on how uh, applications should be built. And the idea of CameraX is more uh, about uh, compatibility as well as ease of use. It's a, a simplified camera API that does work around some of the issues across multiple versions of Android or across multiple devices. Um, so if you want to use, you know, if you want to use the, the camera API in your, in your application, you should probably start with CameraX. I also noticed some of the new features were uh, gestural navigation. Does that change how you develop a UI? Uh, so it does uh, imply a few changes. And uh, there again, like Jetpack is here to uh, to help you a little bit. We're making changes, for instance, to the uh, drawer layout. You know, it's that, uh, that component when you slide from the left of the screen. Because um, the new gesture navigation uh, lets you, basically, the back button is not there anymore when you use gesture navigation. So you have to swipe from the edge of the screen. Uh, which could interfere with what the application is doing. So applications need to participate a little bit in the process um, to make sure that you know uh, the, the system and the applications uh, don't fight. Uh, and again, typically the navigation drawer, you would swipe from the edge of the screen to, to show the drawer. 
but now you know, it goes back. So we have APIs in place uh, to make that work. Are there overrides in case you're running some kind of game and you actually need that area? Uh, yeah, there, there are various things you can do. Uh, and again, you know, for developers who are interested in all the nitty-gritty details, there were there were talks at Google I/O uh, specifically on this topic on what are the, uh, the, the the best practices and where you should put the content, how you should handle the gestures, and uh, what APIs you can use uh, to do it successfully. Great. Uh, one thing I'm curious about is the folding devices. Um, uh, that probably poses some challenges for developers uh, in how they design their UI. Uh, yeah, so what we have is we have uh, the emulator now supports the uh, foldable uh, format. So you can test, you know, inside the emulator. And we do have APIs in Android Q to, uh, to, to help you this with foldables. Uh, I have not done anything myself really to follow the rules. So I, I don't know what the guidelines are or, or what is a proper UX. But, you know, we Android as a platform tries to support like the entire ecosystem. So this is something we're bringing to, to, to the platform itself. So I just wanted to ask you, I know some people are very strong with UI design. When I started programming, I think a lot of people I've taught, I, I'm a community college teacher, think like, oh, well, I'm going to learn about UI design because that seems artistic and like it's going to be easier than some of the code. And then I found out pretty quickly that for me, it was a lot easier to write some of the more hard involved code (laughs) than it is to make something look good or to make something feel usable. So I really admire people who have a talent to lay out a good good UI. Um, What makes a good UI? What goes into a good design? Yeah, I think this is a a very, very broad question. And uh, and I agree with you, you know, like UI design obviously is a skill and, and within UI design, you know, there are different areas, right? Like there's interaction design, there's motion design, uh, there's just the ability to be able to draw pretty pixels. Uh, and those are not, sometimes they're the same person. Uh, and, you know, it's great that there are people who are good at all of these things. Uh, and sometimes those are, are actual different persons with, with different jobs. Um, I think, you know, nowadays, uh, because we have those, those computers in our pocket and we tend to go through a lot of applications, it's really about having a, a UI that's easy to grasp, uh, that you can learn quickly without any form of onboarding, um, without falling into the trap of being simplistic. Um, you know, building, I think what, what the hardest thing to build is a simple UI, which means it's something that empowers you as a user uh, that almost can grow with you as you get, you know, accustomed to the application. Whereas simplistic UI is just something that's going to remove all the features and all, all the things that make the app enjoyable just because that way, you know, the first time it seems intuitive. Um, and yeah, the best designers I've worked with, they manage to like give you those extremely powerful apps. Uh, and, you know, you just, as you use the app, like you just learn more and more without even realizing it. Uh, and it's always quite amazing to see uh uh, to see that. And it's true on all platforms, right? Like it, it's not specific to Android. Yeah, I, I like that. The idea that if you have your initial UI being simple, but without it actually detracting away from either the usage or from the fact that there are more UI elements to learn later on once you become more efficient. I like that phrase that the app grows with you. I think that's a, a very powerful concept. We also had Erica Sedun on earlier in the season where she talked about the the time, the perfect time frame for a mobile app is, is one trip to the restroom. Uh, yes, pretty much. Uh, yeah, and it's also interesting that, you know, uh, at least as far as I'm concerned, like the apps I love the most are apps that let me do the tasks I've set out to do, like in the fastest way possible. Uh, 
you know, my goal in life, I do software and I love software, but I don't want to use software if I don't have to use it. Uh, <laughs> and, and yeah, like, you know, staying in an app for the sake of staying in the app is not, is not interesting to me as a user. I just want to get things done. Um, I want software to get out of the way. I've heard the design principle that an app should do one thing and one thing well. And I really like what you said that the hardest, it's hard to build a simple UI. <laughs> yeah. And it's, and it's interesting because, uh, it also really depends, I believe, on, on your audience, right? The obviously uh, productivity applications that are aimed at professionals can't be limited to doing only one thing because, you know, there's a demand there for something more powerful and you can still, and it becomes that much harder to keep the, the application simple. Um, to me, a, a really good example of that is uh, there's this suite of applications on macOS called, uh, and Windows actually, also called uh, Affinity. So they have Affinity designer, photo, and publisher, uh, they are you know, more or less equivalent to, like, for, for instance, Photoshop. Um, and they're very approachable. They're fairly simple. But when you dig a little bit, like they are in incredibly powerful. Um, and they also work with one another. So when you have all of them installed, like, they, they just you know, complement each other, uh, which is kind of neat. Um, and they're by all means, like, you know, they do more than one thing, uh, but they're not scary. When you, when you launch them. I hope so. I'm about to release an app that does six different things. It's, it's, it's like a, it's a, a utility bucket. So it's got six little utilities in it. And each one of them actually has to do their one thing fairly well. So we'll pray that we'll pray that it's not one thing. Uh, but yeah, and you know, and UX is also uh, these days, like we think, you know, material design or like touch UIs, but UX is not always about you know just pretty pixels that you touch on screen. Like a best example, like to to, to what you were saying of, of of apps that do one thing and one thing well, uh, simply the Unix uh, command line tools. Uh -huh. uh, you know, it's like very targeted tools that do just one thing, but you can easily compose them together, and that's your UX uh, to build yourself like you know a, compl a more complex task. But can you say they really do one thing when you find out they have at least seven hundred minus commands with them? So it really depends on the tool. Uh, yes, uh, a lot of them do just one thing, <laughs> like the command Git or the command Python. They do a little bit more than just <laughs> Git is a special case. Uh, I really like I really like Git, but the, the UX of Git is a very interesting. Uh, use case. <laughs> so, do you have any recommendations for taking your uh, taking your UI skills up a notch? So, there are actually very interesting books out there. Um, I wish they're somewhere behind me actually right now. <laughs> <laughs> and what I found interesting is that you know some of the fundamental design principles haven't changed in a long, long time. So, obviously, you know they take a different shape, they take a different form because we just have different form factors today. But one of my uh, uh, favorite books uh, on the topic of UI design was about open looks, which was a UI toolkit, uh, I think, by Sun Microsystems uh, for Spark stations at the end of the 80s, like early 90s. And the book is fascinating because they show, you know, what went uh, what went into the design of, of that UI toolkit. But it was in black and white. Uh, they didn't have, you know, color displays uh, <laughs> just yet. And and it's great to see like how they they worry about, you know, uh, readability, ease of use, even when all you have to work with is black and white. Um, and there's uh, there are other books, you know, one of the most famous one, like the design of everyday things. It's just it's not about software, right? It's just about everything that surrounds us. 
And even there, like you can find like terrible designs, uh, and you can find also beautiful designs. You know, I'm sure we've all found the door. Like sometimes you try to open it, it takes you a couple seconds to figure out like do I have to pull, do I have to twist, do I have to push? Uh, <laughs> and and it's also great like to you know to 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 think about those things because they don't translate directly to, to UX, but it's a way like to, to train yourself to think about usability more than just, you know, like colors and animations and, and the fancy things uh, that you put on screen. Um, and, you know, some of the, the, the base UIs I've used in the past, they were not necessarily pretty as well. So, you know, when we talk to UI design, this we often conflate like um, usability and, and attractiveness uh, kind of the design, and both are very important. But first and foremost, your app should be, uh, should again empower the user, like, you know, be easy to use, easy to understand. Uh, is it accessible? Does it work? Does it work in multiple languages? Um, and I remember reading stories about, you know, like old school applications that were written for uh, MS DOS, where you have this horrible, like, you know, blue and white screens, like all in ASCII art. Um, and then people transitioned to, like, you know, real GUIs. But they missed the old ones because the old ones were optimized for the job. So, the, for instance, data entry, and they were all driven by keyboard and a few keystrokes, and they lost that in the transition. And so they didn't care about having, you know, fancier graphics. They wanted, like, to get the job done quickly. Um, and again, it depends. Some apps like will benefit more from having fancy visuals. Uh, some apps won't. Uh, but yeah, I really encourage to like you know don't necessarily just look at at the new principles or just what goes in material design, for instance. That's important. But also look look back and look at what people have done before in the past because there's a lot to learn from 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 them. And we have a, you know at Google at other conferences, there's a lot of talks on design and there's tons of resources today, like much much more than than 15 or 20 years ago. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's 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 amazing that it's a field that's always changing, but at the same same rate is always based in very similar mentality. So obviously, I have to ask you: Do you lean toward or away from skeuomorphism? <laughs> uh, both, actually. Uh, Best answer. Yes. Uh, <laughs> one of the reasons that uh, uh, part of my work and one of the things I like to do these days is to work on uh, 3D real-time uh, physically-based rendering engines where you basically try to recreate the world you know, photorealistically. Uh, so you know, there's no more... It doesn't get more skeuomorphic than this. Uh, at the same time, uh, I am kind of glad, you know, I've gone through the uh, the craze of skeuomorphism, especially on, on, on macOS from like, uh, when was it? Like when I had one of my PowerBook uh, where every window was made of titanium or like brushed yeah. metal and wood. And I have built UIs myself that were like this. Uh, yeah, it's good that we're, we went away from it. Part of me like can't help but wonder, uh, our industry is full of cycles. Um, we're seeing that nowadays, for instance, with like functional programming that becomes, you know, uh, it's becoming mainstream again. And functional programming is nothing new. Uh, and I wonder if, you know, in 10, 15 years from now, everybody will, you know, go back to skeuomorphism and say, no, this is way better because, you know, it reminds us of the physical world and it's more intuitive. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see what happens. In this episode, we've been talking to Roman Guy about the new features of Android Q and AR. Uh, after this message from our sponsor, Triple Byte, we'll be back for the second half. And that's when we'll get a chance to listen to you talk about Jetpack Compose. Yes. I will try. Yes. <laughs> All right. We'll be back right after this. The RightWendelick.com podcast will be right back. But first, a message from our sponsor. 
This RayWenderlich.com podcast is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on phone screens, take-home projects, and that's assuming the company even responds to your interest or your cover letters. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies, from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them, and if you do well, you get to go straight to the final interviews with the companies on their platform. It's like the common app for software engineers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. And I can appreciate that. Being in the industry for 35 years, I'm entirely self-taught. My undergraduate study was in theater, and I left school to do my first job. So I don't carry a bachelor's, no bachelor's of arts, no bachelor's of science. And that's the one thing I'm often trying to hide or misdirect on my resume. With TripleByte, they'd care more about the coding experience that I have and not worry about that one little fact. Apply now at triplebyte.com slash ray. That's triplebyte.com byte B-Y-T-E as in 8 bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through Triplebyte, they'll offer you a thousand dollar signing bonus. And a special thanks to Triple Byte for sponsoring this episode of the Ray Wenderlich Podcast. Welcome back to Section 2. We got Jen, who has been experimenting with Jetpack Compose. And we're going to find out how well or how not so well that went today. Jen, first of all, because remember, I, I'm, I'm the cheap iOS person in the group. Can you give me a quick lowdown on what Jetpack Compose is? All right. So um, Jetpack Compose is an unbundled toolkit. Um, it's designed to simplify UI development. And I think the parallel you could draw from the iOS world would be Swift UI, or it looks a lot like Flutter or React. Okay. So it's a declarative tool because it uses tags and um, markup. And it's reactive because the UI will update to reflect the data mile, the data model automatically. Um, and that was one question I had for Roban is, um, what is the difference between a reactive programming model and data binding? They are uh, very similar. Um, the main difference that in the, the reactive programming model, at least you know, our version of the reactive programming model, uh, is that we want the data flow to be one way. Uh, so data always flows from top to bottom. And what goes back from bottom to top are the events. Um, so one of the reasons we, we are building Jetpack Compose is because our existing UI toolkit, which has uh, served us and still serves us really well uh, over the past 10 years and has gone through like you know major improvements, uh, a huge source of bugs comes from the fact that we don't have this one way uh, for for the flow of data. Um, so a typical example is, let's say you have a slider and you know, the user like moves the slider and you want to filter or change the value. So when the user moves the slider, the application receives a callback. And inside that callback, you can say, no, I want the value to be this other value instead. But by setting the value, you're going to trigger another callback back to the application. Uh, and that can lead to, 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 you know, to complex code that, that is tricky to, to maintain and to test. And beyond that, one of the issues as well is that there's no single source of truth 
for the data inside the application, because the data itself as a data model uh, that's usually you know really to do your business logic. So that's that's basically whatever you want it to be. But then the widgets themselves have a data model. Um, and basically, all the code that you're writing as a developer is, is kind of a glue to make sure that those two data models stay in sync. Uh, and so you often have a lot of bugs that come from the fact that, you know, you are desynchronized somehow, somewhere. Uh, and, and Jetpack Compose effectively tries to, to fix this issue. Um, and it's also, you know, under the umbrella of Jetpack, so it's what I, I said in, in part one, that we try to make it easier to write applications. And so we've went through a lot of iterations internally before we talked about Jetpack Compose publicly, where we kept trying to simplify the APIs and simplify them more and more and more. And for instance, you know, we started with a model where we had, uh, like you mentioned, we had tags that looked like uh, almost XML, uh, you know, similar angle brackets. Uh, we decided against that because, you know, in the spirit of simplification, it was let's not add something that's not already in the language. So now our, our widgets, our components, they look like functions. Um, and same thing. At first, we had two t- we we had classes uh, to create our widgets, which is something pretty uh, you know natural in UI toolkits. But then we realized that when you want to create a widget, there's all that, that that ceremony involved where you have to create a class, you have to extend something, you have to extend the right thing, you have to implement you know a constructor, a specific method. And if you get it wrong, then you're going to have you know, compile time issues or runtime issues. Um, so we we wanted to get rid of all that, and now a widget is just a function uh, and so again like the goal is to simplify 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 as much as possible um, and another one uh, another like important pillar uh, behind compose is the android ui toolkit when it started uh, one of the ideas was to make it super easy to build android applications um, and one way we've we've done that was to give you a lot of fairly complex components out of the box that would do a lot for you uh, which was great because you know you could build like hey, here's my list of contacts and a few lines of code. The problem is it makes for components that are fairly rigid, that are difficult to customize, and that over the years it forces you to add more and more features to those very complex components, uh, and that makes the API harder to use over time for developers. Um, and even worse, when the component doesn't do quite exactly what you want. Uh, you can't really fix it or you can't really rewrite it yourself. Like I have a lot of developers who came to me and they want to do something with our text component. And you know, my answer sometimes is unfortunately, well, you can't do that because uh, our component was not meant to do this. So here, copy paste like the thousands and thousands and thousands of lines of code. Uh, here's a, a white paper on you know text layout and good luck. <laughs> uh, you're on your own now. And that's not a good answer. That's never a good answer, right? Like, you know, this was getting in the way of people building their applications. Like, they, they, they want to worry about their features, not about the framework. It's getting in the way of good UI design because, you know, sometimes you have to say no to your UI designers for the wrong reason, which is, oh, the widget was not meant to do this, so we cannot do it. So instead, what the approach we're taking with Compose, and it's in the name, we want to let you compose widgets out of, like, smaller widgets. So we're doing a lot more, you know, it's kind of back to what we're saying about apps. It's a lot more of like uh, targeted widgets that can do one thing, but they do it really well. And they're all public and you can reuse them. 
And if you want to, if you don't like our, our checkbox and you want to recreate your own, it's only a few lines of code. Uh, you know, there's no magic in our checkbox. We, we only use things that are available to you as opposed to the existing UI toolkit where there's a lot of private stuff that you don't have access to. Um, so uh, we have a, and the more we play with, with, with this, like, you know, we're not ready yet to have a, a version one and uh, we're still iterating on a number of, on a number of concepts. But we are so far pretty pleased with you know how it feels when we use it. Like especially for some of us who have been using the existing toolkit for so many years, uh, very quickly it was like, hey, this feels a lot better. So we think we're onto something good. How's your experience going with it so far, Jen? I have enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to when there's more documentation because at this point, um, <laughs> I'm just reverse engineering the samples. I'm intermediate with Kotlin at best, right. but um, I was able to. Um, I got got to attend your talk of what's new in Android and then your UI talk. So I got to hear you talk about it. And um, I was able to reproduce a sample similar to your joke counter. (laughs) (laughs) And it worked for me. So I was able to um, set it up. And that was a new experience, too. Um, I love growing with with Google. And, you know, I'm a fangirl because uh, I'm a hobbyist developer alongside teaching. Um, So I never had any experience with using the Android open source project um, or the repo tool. So that was really fun. The instructions were really clear. I was able to do that without a hitch to go download. Um, it was a version of Android Studio. Yes. And I have to ask, as in the top right corner there, I noticed it said version 3.5. And um, so I, I don't know if it's public information or not, but will this be in the next version of Android Studio? Uh, probably not. I don't know when the next version of Android Studio is going to be, but you know, uh, so so if we back out a little bit uh, for the listeners who haven't thought Google I.O., Jetpack Compose right now is it's not even an alpha, uh, it's not even a technical preview. What we did at Google I.O. was, um, if we back out a little more even, with Jetpack, with Jetpack and some of the architectural com- components, we decided to uh, be as open as possible with our developer community. Um, so we developed a lot of those libraries in the open, in the open, going through long alpha and beta cycles to be able to gather as much feedback as possible. And you know, unsurprisingly, it was good for everyone involved. Uh, and so we decided to do the same thing for Jetpack Compose. Like once we felt that we had something that was uh, structured enough uh, to start, you know, having discussions with the community, we decided to, you know, we're not ready yet, and it's going to take a while. But we'd like to share the source code. We would like to move all the development in the open. So, you know, you can watch like daily all the changes we're making to Jetpack Compose, like, you know, on, on uh, even every hour, you can see like all the changes that are happening. Uh, so we're not hiding anything. Uh, and part of it is because we want the community to be involved and we want the feedback because, you know, you, for instance, uh, Jen, you write applications. I don't anymore, unfortunately. Uh, and so, you know, I have tons of ideas, I have my own intuitions, but we want to hear from people who, you know, are out there and like build the applications. We want to make what's hard for you. We want to make it easy. And, you know, the best way to know that is to ask you directly and to get you involved. Um, and so, and we have like, you know, uh, discussion channels. For instance, there's a, a Slack for Kotlin uh, from JetBrains. So there's a, it's called Kotlin Lang. And there's a Compose uh, channel on that Slack where a few people uh, from the Jetpack Compose team are present every day. And so, you know, you can join and talk to us and give us 
feature requests to tell us like what you don't like about Compose or ask us like why we did things one way or another. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so, so what we did at IO was uh, basically what you said, we put all the code in AOSP and so we have instructions online on how you can download it. Uh, we on purpose did not provide it as a, as a ready to use library because uh, we, we want people to understand that this is not ready for production. Uh, <laughs> please don't push applications in Play Store using this because, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> not meant for that. Uh, so we're basically asking you to download the source code and compile it, uh, but we made it as easy as possible. And in particular, there's a, a special version of Studio that has support for Jetpack Compose uh, enabled inside. And it's a script that you launch uh, from the source tree and it will launch that, that special version of Android Studio. Now, we also have a, a primer on the Ray Wenderlich site. Is that correct, Jen? That's correct. I got a little help from um, a primer on our site and also the documentation from Google. So that's good. Um, I, uh, we can put a link in the show notes to Joe's tutorial. So that's what we always do right after IO, at least um, me and my friends is, oh, let's go try the new stuff. <laughs> That looked about my speed. I'm like, I, this looks like something I could understand enough to play with. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, no, here, here, here. This, this isn't done yet, but we're going to show you how to use it, even though we don't even know how it's used. But I'll be the first. <laughs> yes, but you know, and it's important because it's also like, you know, seeing people try to explain how it works when it's new to them as well is also good for us because the fact we've seen a number of articles, uh, you know, on Medium and blog posts of people who had like a very good grasp of the concepts and were able to explain it very clearly within days. And to us, you know, uh, to some level, it kind of vindicates uh, what we've been doing because if someone can grasp it so quickly and clearly explain it, you know, one of the things we're afraid of is like it's a lot of new things to learn uh, and understand. And, you know, we run user studies and stuff like that. But we want to make sure that anybody can can easily get up to speed. Uh, and one of the big changes, I think you touched upon that a little bit, uh, is that it's all written in Kotlin. Uh, you know, so at IO, we said that Android is now Kotlin first, uh, still supporting Java very much, uh, but Compose is written in Kotlin. Uh, and one of the reasons that it enables us to do what we're doing, uh, plus you know, designing what we think are better APIs. Um, so, you know, we know we're asking a lot from developers, but we're here to like help them transition. Uh, <laughs> is that, um, it, this seems like Kotlin really lends itself well to this application because of the Lambda aspect of the language? That's exactly it. Uh, yeah, and the, especially the magic of, uh, of the trailing lambdas, uh, when the last parameter of a function is a lambda, you don't have to pass it as a parameter. You can just uh, open the curly bra the, the braces and put your code right there. And that's basically how Compose works. Uh, when you say, you know, uh, column, open curly brace, button, or open curly brace, you're just calling two functions called uh, column and button, and they each take a lambda, uh, and that's how you compose, uh, you know, all the widgets together. Uh, so it works really well. And, and under the hood, the way Jetpack Compose works is, is actually fairly interesting. It's a, uh, it's a plugin for the Kotlin compiler. Um, so our composable functions, what we call the composable functions, the widgets, are treated a little bit differently than, than regular functions. Um, They're more like the suspend functions that you find in core routines. Uh, so we couldn't do that just as a library. You know, we, we 
we usually don't do this kind of trickery with compilers, but in that particular case, doing it at the compiler level enabled us to do something that's simpler and easier than the, uh, the alternatives that we could think of. And it'll be able to receive updates sooner. Did I understand that right? Yeah, like, so um... one of the you know uh, drawbacks uh, in some ways, it's also one of the strengths of the existing UI toolkit, is that it's part of the system. So we only deliver updates when the system is updated, uh, which can lead to frustrating situations both for us and for external developers where, you know, uh, let's say if you file a bug and I fix it and I tell you, Jen, you're going to be super happy, I fixed the bug. Your reaction will be like, great, the fix will be, you know, on the vast majority of devices in a few years. You know, until then, I don't care. Uh, and and th that is that is an issue. Um, so... Jetpack Compose is just a library that you put inside your application, uh, which means you'll be able to take updates as often as you want or as rarely as you want. Like if we do something you don't necessarily agree with, you can withhold and keep an, you know, another version. I think you shouldn't. Uh, and it will also be... It will also give us the opportunity, and you know, we'll do that uh, extremely rarely, uh, I hope, um, but it, it could give us the opportunity to uh, change the APIs. Uh, because we cannot change the APIs in the platform because otherwise we would break applications uh, and it would be bad. We, we want to keep applications running. Uh, but when it's a library that you take on inside your application uh, between major versions of the library, we could change the APIs you know, based on feedback and to make your life that much easier. Um, so yeah, we're very excited. Uh, we have a, a lot of work to do still. <laughs> I, uh, I can't wait until there's more uh, documentation and I was having a lot of fun working it, um, around in there. And uh, once upon a time, I was a .NET programmer and I actually found and fixed a bug in Visual Studio. So now with Android oh, Open awesome. Source Project, I'm like, hey, maybe I'll, maybe uh, I'll contribute a tiny little line of code someday. <laughs> uh, you can, especially in Compose. I mean, yeah, all you have to do is send a, send a patch and uh, we can uh, decode you. <laughs> <laughs> you never know, because if you spend enough time looking through code, you know, you um, you might find something. I did once. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's wonderful to see these core foundational things in both OSs in the public domain, because it allows the end user, the end developers who have to use these tools to really be able to say, this is a scalpel-like fix that we really need to make things work better. Yeah, there's, there's that. And also, you know, uh, I've, I've used open source platforms and frameworks a lot uh, uh, in, in my short career. And what I've always enjoyed is just, you know, sometimes even the best frameworks are going to run into bugs, you're going to run into uh, documentation that's not perfect. And sometimes just being able to look at the source code like helps understand things. Uh, or it's not because it's a bug, like, you know, uh, looking at the code, you learn things, uh, you understand the performance profile of the, of the, the API you're using, so you'll become a better user of that library. Uh, it has a lot of benefits, uh, and it goes both ways, right? Like, you know, people like find issues that we didn't find, or they tell us about better ways of doing things. It's, uh, I really enjoy it. What kind of things do you feel are currently still really lacking in, in Jetpack that needs to, that needs to be fleshed out more? Uh, in the existing libraries, we're, we're, I think we're in a very good shape. I mean, there's ongoing work on, on most of the libraries, and now Jetpack is, is pretty big. Uh, I don't remember the exact number, but we have about 70 libraries or something like this uh, that span you know, so many like domains. The, 
the main issue we have honestly is that we have tons of ideas. Uh, it's just a, a question of resources, like you know what what should be our priorities, like what libraries should we build first, uh, where can we have like the most uh, impact for our developers. Uh, and yeah, it's uh, it, it's always frustrating, you know. We have all those discussions internally. It's like, oh yeah, well maybe we'll do this next year. And <laughs> well, my, this this is fantastic stuff. And you know, I, I always walk away from these things going, well, here's a technology now I want to look at, and I, and I don't get my time to to look into Android tech, but it really does intrigue me to see more declarative. UI being built up, and I, I'm really looking forward to hearing how Compose continues to grow. I, I really want to thank you for being on the show today. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. And Jen, that was some really great information, especially with your experience and what you've been going through on that as well. Thank you. But that's going to wrap things up for this ninth episode of season nine. We'll be back again in two weeks with Mark Dalrymple. He was on about two seasons ago. And Mark's always a treat because you never quite know what we're going to talk about. It could be anything from how to solve problems to just pulling out 30-year-old computer textbooks and having fun being old. But that wraps things up for this episode. We thank again Triple Byte. That's Byte, B-Y-T-E, for sponsoring this episode. We'll be back again in two weeks. Until then, we go back to the Emerald Castle. Ray, back to you. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWendelk.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.